0: You are listening to Chef, the first podcast to uncover the personal backgrounds and the private lives of the biggest names in French cuisine. Hello and welcome, I'm David Ordeneau. I'm a journalist, I love food, and so I decided to travel around my own country to meet the French chef that achieved world fame. So, please, excuse my French accent and don't worry. I'm not the one who's about to tell you their story. They will tell their own story, in their own words, but translated. In the first episode, we're off to Brittany, to the Finisterre region. That literally means Land's End. The village is called Plot Moderne, 2300 souls. And it really does sit at the age of the world. The chef we're about to meet often calls it the last village before New York City. So in this small village, there's an inn, and it's stood there since the 19th century. It's called the Auberge des Glaziques. At the beginning, it was a middle-class restaurant for the local workers. Now, it's a two Michelin Michelin-star stable. So I've driven six hours to get here, and now I'm here with the chef Olivier Belin. He's almost six feet, he weighs 260 pounds, and his eyes keep scanning around everywhere, as if he doesn't want to waste a single second. You're gonna discover the extraordinary story of a chef who never wants to stop. He wants free Michelin stars, and is looking at me right now as if he's daring me to ask him questions. We're on a wild ride. Here is the story of Olivier Belin.
1: It used to be a blacksmith's here. That's the original house, dating from 1870. We cook in here now. On the front, you can still see the original rings. That's where the horses were tied up, where my grandfather and great-grandfather would shoe the horses. And after, in 1945, it all stopped my grandmother was a woman with a very strong personality and she said that's enough no more and we opened an inn so there'd always be soup as a starter and customers with more money would get to eat both the soup and the vegetables my grandmother runs the inn for 15 years and one day she falls ill so she says to her daughter in one week you've got a wedding reception sort it out and my mother says how am I supposed to do that and her answer is I'll always remember this just deal with it just try to remember what I taught you when you were in the kitchen and you watched me do it enough times. Take out the old cookbooks, just get on with it, it's for you to sort it out now. And that's how my mother became a cook. But it was just crazy. I saw her work herself down to the bone, 180 covers, and she'd handled them all herself. After cooking, she'd handle the bar, my father would give her a hand, and customers wouldn't leave until 10 or 11 p.m. I saw my mother cry. When she messed up a dish, when something would curdle because there wasn't a cold room, she'd say, I have to throw everything away, I have to cook it all over again. When you're five or six years old, you're young, you want to play all day, well, you see this. So I didn't want to do this job. I really didn't want to. But I did love to eat. When there were 180 people here eating a banquet on a Saturday night, my mom would bring up the platters and place them one by one on the steps. 50 steps, 50 platters. And so there would be all these smells and I would see these langoustines all lined up and I'd always take one. My mother would see me and she'd tell me off, Olivier, stop! I'd say, I'm not doing anything. And I'd eat the tail and suck on the head and man, was it good. And the next day, at breakfast, I like to take a piece of crusty bread, with a little bit of butter, a few slivers of leftover lobster, and we'd add some cold lobster sauce. I'd eat that for breakfast, so from the start my palate was trained that way, and I'm not even talking about all the cream, the egg custards, the floating island desserts, the far breton cakes, all the Brittany stuff, you know? My mother wanted to be a race car pilot, that should tell you a lot about the woman. And I remember we'd jump in her car and she'd say, want to go to Plotnevet? And we'd race down the road to see my second mom, who was called Anne-Marie. She was her best friend from childhood and she'd opened a creperie. We'd get there and she'd be folding the crepes in silence, no one said a word. She'd say, Olive, want a crepe? And presto, she'd make a crepe and I'd eat a dozen crepes for my afternoon snack. I was very, very fat when I was young. I mean, really obese. Back then, there weren't fat people around, hardly any really. And my mother had always been so protective, so I'd never really been aware of it. But I'd still hear people call me Bella the Blimp, Butterball Bella. I cried sometimes. It's kind of like when you hammer in a nail. The first 10 blows, it'll hold, but the last blow, it goes right in. And it hurts because you have to really be strong on the inside. My mom taught me not to react. She said, I know you don't like it, I know it hurts you. Don't listen, just move on. One day, my father says, you're not much good at school, I know you're not interested in your studies, and you don't know what you want to do, but we can see you like eating, so you're going to go study cooking. So, I ended up in trade school, which means, first thing, it's a boarding school. And that was a shock. Because when you've been living in this little family cocoon for so long and suddenly you end up in a tiny bedroom living crowded together with 300 other guys, well, it's a shock to the system. Some guys don't do any work and if you want to work in the evenings, there's always noise, music, guys singing and you always have a couple of jackasses bothering you, so it ain't easy. And at that point, I'm still pretty fat. So being in the kitchen, everything's heavy. I'm heavy, you have to move fast to get your pans. So for my first apprenticeship, I end up in the next village, working for the guy who married my mother. He used to be a pastry chef, and then he became a chef. And that's when I realized, wow, this is really hard work. Là, tu... You get up at 6.30, start at 7.30, you finish at 1 in the morning, and as for taking breaks, forget it. And I think that's when it started for me. I remember he used to say, put on your down jacket, we're going into the cold room, and he'd start making puff pastry in there. I remember he'd say, see, when there's air bubbles in it like that, that's good. I'm thinking, it's magic. How does he know how it's going to turn out when the thing hasn't even been baked yet? So that's when things start getting interesting, and I think to myself, okay, I found my thing, but it's gonna be a very long road before I get there. So that experience gives me a taste of cooking. So when I get out of there and I start my lessons at school again, I'm a completely different student. So the second restaurant I go to, I'm 16, and they give me a proper job in the kitchen. And I can see from the food on the plates that I've gone up a notch. I start seeing much neater plating, a nice bit of fish, tiny vegetable flan next to it, It was fashionable back then, a little seaweed on the side. And one day, the chef asks me, by the way, do you know about great chefs? Don't really know what to say, so I mention the trois Gros brothers, and he says, I'm going to show you the greatest chef of them all. Okay, and he takes a book from the shelf, and he shows me the cover. Joël Robuchon, my cooking for you. He says, that's the greatest chef. He opens the book and the first picture we see is the Belle de Mer lobster plate. There's a lobster that's been shelled a la rebouchon, which means absolute precision, amazing detail, perfect dots of mayonnaise mixed with chlorophyll. There's a chervil tip on top of each slice of lobster and I suddenly get it and I go, it's a painting. At the end of the shift, I asked the chef, can I borrow your book? And I lived in a caravan at the time because there wasn't enough room there for me to live. And in the caravan, I never read books at the time. I just race through that book and everything becomes clear. That's who I need to go and work for. But in the book he's written, when I'm 50, I'll retire. I do the math. He's now 45, so I have five years left. I need to find a way. Within five years, I need to go work for him. The apprenticeship ends. I've lost 35 pounds, and things are different now. You can see my neck. I've grown taller, and no one recognizes me, and my life changes, my entire life. I stopped seeing my friends. All I do now is read every single thing I can find about Robuchon. He wrote a weekly column in a magazine, and I'd buy every issue, cut out the column. I was like a groupie with a rock star. And I really start getting down to work, At school, things have become a lot more interesting. During class, if the teacher asks who wants to do a demo technique, I'd always raise my hand, even if I couldn't do it yet. And then, something crazy happens. There's this competition. I train like mad for it, and by the end, I'm chosen to represent my school in the final. Man, the night before, I can't sleep. When it starts, I begin cooking, but it gets off to a bad start. There's no roe on my scallops and everything was relying on there being roe because I wanted to make a sauce with it. I asked the other contestants if they're using their roe and no one replies. And then I understand, it's every man for himself and I cook my heart out. And when I'm finished, I'm
2: exhausted. <laughs> then the results
1: come in and the guy from the jury says a name, another name, a third name, a fourth And then it comes down to announcing the last three. They read the first name, and I tell myself, there's only two of us left. I don't believe I'm going to win, but I do. He says my name, and I don't understand, but everyone turns towards me. And I say, what happened? And they say, you did it, man. And then my whole world exploded. So finally, I feel validated, I've achieved something, four years of learning justified at that moment. And I realize I can go beyond that. My life is about to change. I'm 17, and I know my life is going to be different from everyone else's. And I only have two and a half years left to get to Robuchon. But before I go work for Robuchon, I want to go to other regions discover French produce and products and learn from the chefs how they work with them. I go to the Loire region and work with Chef Cousseau. I learn how to work with mushrooms, with duck, with asparagus from Majesque, with game, and I discover classics I don't know.
2: He would do an
1: entire truffle in a veal stock reduction. It was the first time I ever saw this. He takes a truffle, small saute pan with high sides, knob of butter. He browns the truffle on all sides. A little bit of pepper, a little bit of salt. He deglazes it with Madeira. Lid on, five minutes. Veal stock, braise 15 minutes. He opens the lid, and boom, an absolute marvel. So it's going well. But because I've won the contest for best young chef in Brittany, there is a problem. I've let it go to my head. And because I'm acting like a jerk, Chef Cousseau gets annoyed with me. And that made for some tough days. And then I have to go. But I spent six months there, and I still have a great memory of that time because I discovered all those new ingredients. So I came back to Brittany, and I started with Chef Guillou in La Topinière, in Pontaven, and there I discovered top-notch fish and shellfish.
2: You know what that means?
1: It means one Saturday, two guys come into the restaurant, one's got a limp, the other's missing an eye, and they say, hey, chef, we got to create a langoustine for you. These are fishermen, and their catch is unbelievable, and they'd gone right out into a storm to get it. So on the menu tonight, we've got royal langoustine grilled in the fireplace, Now that's exceptional seafood. Then one day, I get the second biggest shock of my life. The sommelier comes up to me before the shift and says, Ali, your guru is coming. And I go, what, Robuchon is there? And the chef comes over to me and says, Mr. Robuchon is coming for lunch. During service, well, we have an open kitchen. So I spend my time watching Mr. Robuchon. And I don't know if it's destiny or what, but everything he ordered came from my station. Sautéed, seasonable vegetables with bearnaise sauce and lobster jus on the side. Grilled sea bass and potato cake. I used to cook the sea bass under the salamander grill. And then an apple tart at the end. At the end of the service, the chef is chatting with Mr. Robuchon while we're shelling brown crabs and velvet crabs. Mr. Robuchon comes to have a look He walks up to us, he nods, but he doesn't chat with us. I think, shit, they know he's my idol and they don't even introduce us. And he leaves. It's about 5.15, we've finished our prep work, we're gonna go take a shower and come back. And I hear, Olivier, what are you doing now? And I say, well, I'm gonna go get cleaned up. And she says, would you bring these glasses back to Mr. Robichaux? I'm like, are you kidding?
2: And she says, you have an hour
1: to find him. He's gone to visit some local chapels. So I rush out of there, and I find him. When you see him for the first time, there's like a halo around him, like something that won't let you... I don't know. It's just strange. So I give him his glasses back, and I say, I'd like to work in your restaurant. And he says, well, when you end your work here, just write to the restaurant... Have your chef right, too, and we'll see if there's a spot for you. So now I'm thinking, I've been here seven or eight months, but I know I'm going to be leaving. And my father asks, what are you going to do now? I say, my military service, so it's over and done with. Then after that, I can start at Robuchon's, because he'll be about 49 by then. They send me to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I become the private chef for the foreign minister, Mr. Juppé. After a while, the head steward of the ministry, Mr. Balazon, says, I'm doing really well. The minister is really happy with me, that I'm friendly, I make crepes for his kids with him in the kitchen. And a year goes by like that, and the army sort of forgets about me. My military service ends, and Mr. Juppé throws a little party for me, and he asks if there's anything he can do for me. And I say, there's only one thing I want and that's to work for Robuchon. So if you could send a letter or something, and he did it. When I go back to my parents for the holidays, there's a phone call. Hello, this is Joel Robuchon's secretary. Is Olivier Bellin there? It's a Tuesday, and when she asks, when can you start, I say, Monday. Matin, uh, On Monday morning, that fateful Monday, I arrive I early because my mother says it'll make a good impression. It's an hour early, 8 a.m., and I realize everyone's there already. There are three of Even us new guys, and we're all an hour early. They let us in, but they make us wait for half an hour in front of the pass. We're standing there holding our bags, and for half an hour, people walk past us without even talking to us. And I can tell you, that is a really scary start. You say to yourself, they're all walking past us and no one is talking to us? But then after half an hour, some bald guy walks up, Frédéric Anton, who today is chef at La Pre-Catalan, and he says, what do you guys want? They take us downstairs, we get dressed, and we find ourselves face to face with Benoit Guichard, Mr. Robuchon's right-hand man, who says, you, off to pastry. So I go, and I start glazing these tiny pineapple squares, really technical stuff. The tart itself is very tiny, about a square inch. You have to lift up the piece of pineapple from its jelly with a a three-pronged spatula and position it on the top. I don't say a word. I just get to work, and then, suddenly, Mr. Robuchon arrives,
2: the legend himself.
1: I'd only ever seen him once, but now I'm in his world, and he's got these piercing, transparent blue eyes. He sees me, and he says, hey, the Breton guy from Plumaud Okay. He grabs me by the back of the neck, possessive, Freemason-style, he goes, I like you. Come on down before the service starts, and I'll put you to work on the line. He leaves, and I get back to work, but I can tell everyone is looking at me. My chef de partie comes over and says, you know Mr. Robuchon? I say, no, no chef. He says, you're lying, you know Mr. Robuchon. I say, I swear I don't, and he says, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. Come service time, I go down like he asked, and there I discover this perfectly oiled machine. Not a sound. Everyone in their place, not a single noise. He's running the pass, he's the master. They put me on vegetables. And there, I meet the man who will be my chef for eight months, Alain Verzeroli. Alain is an extremely gentle guy who takes me under his wing because he can tell I'm scared. And for the first six months, damn, it is so hard. Everything I had read is exactly right. Everything is timed on a knife edge, every single plate. Thankfully, I can master all the basics, because there's no room for anyone mediocre. Those that can't hack, it, they just hear, first door on the left, get out of here, scram. And what I understood when I got there is that I might have won a competition two years ago, but all the guys around me have also won their competitions in their own region. So now all of a sudden, I'm not number one anymore.
2: I'm just one guy amongst others and that
1: changes a lot and these guys, you see them handle a knife one move and you know it's a whole different ballgame and one day I'm watching Robuchon at the pass and he's calling out orders take that off, place this here and then I realize I've never actually seen him cook so I start wondering he's the greatest chef in the world, fine but you never see him cook so how do you know? But one day, he says to the chef de partie and to come, here, come over here, I'll give you a demo. We'll finalize this plating. And I just happen to be there. I don't say a word, I just watch. And then I see that man handle the produce, and I understand. At that moment, I understand what brought me here. He was making a truffle tart, filo pastry, onion jam with lardon and Madeira, and a truffle topping. Truffle slices layered on top of one another, a little fleur de sel, one turn to the pepper grinder. And to finish, he made a little brush out of a sprig of thyme and he dipped it in olive oil. He sprinkled the tart with the brush and the olive oil had taken on the thyme flavor. Everything was thought out, everything was precise and every gesture was practiced. I'm thinking to myself, I understand what he's doing and I hadn't even tasted it yet. And when I finally got the chance to taste it, I realized this is on a totally different plane. And that's what it's all about. Exceptional produce, new techniques, the garnishes just where they need to be, absolute precise timing, complete control of cooking times, smart seasoning. And most of all, we cooked everything a la minute, right there and then. So I spent two years there. I start on vegetables, but I need an operation on my legs, so I have to stop work for five months. My legs have bothered me all my life. This was my first operation. I've had four since, both legs. But that means I get penalized. It's never good to leave a big restaurant. You can't just stop working. When I come back, I'm tired. My break had been too long, so they put me somewhere else. I'm back at Comi level. So I joke and I say to Fred, are you kidding? You can't make me a comey again. I've been here longer than anyone, and he says... I know, but you haven't worked here for six months. So I start again, but quickly I realize it's going to be very hard because my legs are shot. I spend another year there, but it's a difficult year. I can hold up, but it gets to a point where I'm completely exhausted. And one day I blow a fuse. It's a Monday morning I'll remember all my life. I get there at 7, 8, Fred gets in at 9. He asks me how it's going, whether I'm ready. I say, I'm not ready. I'm not feeling well. He asks, will you be ready by lunchtime? I say, I'll try. He says, excuse me? I say, I'll be ready, chef. Usually on Mondays, we do 25 covers, but that day, I don't know why, we had to do 45. So service starts, and then for some reason, everyone orders a la carte. And to top it off, there's six or seven hens on order. 55 minutes, maybe an hour and a quarter of cooking time for each. It's done in this traditional oven. You have to bend down, take it out, baste it, turn it over. Of course, if you cook sous vide, it's 10 times easier. But here, we have to respect the French traditional way of doing it. And the shift goes so badly. Frédéric Anton is in the weeds too, because he's left me as chef de post, and it's a catastrophe. Of course, the customers didn't notice, but in the kitchen, it's an absolute disaster. And Frédéric comes over to me and he says, that was pathetic, you're a waste of space. And I lose it. I say, you know what, if that's how it is, then I'm leaving. He says, are you kidding me? I go, no, I'm going. He says, you can't go now, there's no one to fill in for you. And I say, I don't give a damn, I'm out of here. So I finish putting pasteurized pig's heads in sous vide, and at 6.15 on the dot, I'm outside Mr. Robichon's office. And what I haven't mentioned is that for a year, when I was on vegetables, I had to make him taste everything in person, every single garnish. I'd go up there with my pans and make him taste it. So we developed this unique connection. And When I get to his office, I feel embarrassed, because all these old feelings are coming back to me. I'm ashamed, because at the time, there are only men in the kitchen, you know? So I have to say, I'm not good enough, I'm leaving. Of course it's honest, but it also means admitting that I've failed somehow. He says, what do you want, Olivier? I say, well, you saw lunchtime service was really bad. I wasn't good enough. He says, "Okay, so you want to switch? Which station do you want to move to? And I say, no, I wasn't good enough. I'd rather do something else. I'm just going to leave. And he says, when? Now. But you can't. And I say, that's what I'm going to do. I left. I'm out of there. And that was it.
0: So, Olivier Belin leaves Robuchon's restaurant overnight. Back home, to Brittany, to his parents' inn, where maybe he'll get over this painful experience. But the next challenge is already ahead. One week later, he decides to join the team of Jacques Torel, a one-star Michelin chef not far from his parents' inn. And over there, the team is as small as the kitchen, and Olivier Belin and Jacques Torel work close together. Torel teaches him how to cook local great products, But more than that, he's going to teach him how to be a chef in his own restaurant.
1: And one day he tells me, Olivier, you're a good cook, but your life's going to change because you're going to go back to Plumordien and you're going to lose all those good things you've had here. The type of cooking you've learned in Paris, forget about it, because you'll be in deepest Brittany and all the caviar and the perfect little dots of dressing on the plates, that's all over now. I don't like to hear it, but I know it's true. So when I get back here, no one's expecting me, and everyone is caught off guard. My mother, my father, my uncle, my mother's staff. But I just forge ahead. And I'm thinking, this is going to work out. So that summer at home I'm pretty much partying I spend more time at clubs than the restaurant Because I've just spent the last 10 years of my life cooking, that's all I feel lazy, sometimes I make the customers wait for an hour and a half before serving them It's nonsense Then one day, two customers come in And I was in the club the night before And I just got back in the morning And I can't even serve them The waiter opens champagne, brings them the bottle, brings them appetizers. And two minutes later, I say, just forget about it. I can't cook. So eat your appetizers. I'm offering you the bottle, and then you can go. The lady says, but Olivier, you can't do that. They go out, and they come across my mother, and they tell her, your son just kicked us out. And my mom says, "He's, he's crazy. He's going crazy. The end of the summer arrives And I find my bags packed in front of the door My father has kicked me out of the house He says you think you're smarter and better than everyone You came back and we had to give you the job But it's too easy You're not the king here We worked before We built this restaurant So get out of here Your mama's
0: going to cook again You can just go away Three months after he came back, Olivier Belin is kicked out of the restaurant, out of his parents' house. He went to his grandfather's house in Bourgogne. But the man was not so flexible and didn't tolerate that someone in the family didn't work. So four months later, Olivier Belin came back to his parents' house and asked them to take him again as a chef. They finally accepted that once in place, he took a huge decision. He's fed up with offering cheap set lunchtime menus. He wants to turn the inn into a fancy restaurant. So he replaced the popular cuisine, leaving all the regular customers, and the Auberge des Glaziques became a gastronomic restaurant overnight. A dangerous and drastic bet. Then I start working like crazy. And in the end, we
1: stop the lunchtime menus. From one day to the next, it's over. A regular show up for lunch in the restaurant has turned into a fine dining-only place. Overnight. We were doing 25 to 30 covers for lunch. It was a dependable income, plus weddings, banquets, and we stopped all that. So, financially, at the beginning, it was devastating. Local people aren't going to come because you've worked with Robuchon or Torel, because you've worked with the greats, no one cares around here. So you've worked with Robuch, they don't give a damn. And my mother didn't tell me right away, but I learned later that we almost went under. Because when you only do two covers a week for a while, you're the only person left that still believes that you'll make it. My father, deep down, was furious. And he didn't hold it against me, not really. But for a long time, he was against me coming here. And the truth of the matter is that he never thought we managed to sustain haute cuisine in Plumordian.
2: My mother took my
1: side. But that's because us two always have worked hand in hand, amazingly closely. And she and I got through some tough times together. My whole life, she's always been in sync with me, on everything. Since the beginning. Since she'd started protecting me. So we've come a long way together. And I'm still thinking, it's my destiny to get three stars, so I keep on going. But when you're looking out onto the bay and the rain is falling on the window panes, well, you start brooding a bit. And then everything Thorel said came back to me, years later. You're out at the edge of nowhere, you have no staff. You'll have to sell $15 menus. You're not going to be able to afford any luxury ingredients. You'll have to use cheap plates to start with. You'll have no silverware, just your mother's cutlery. And most of all, you're going to have to work all on your own. And that's what I did. When I was young, whenever I went to see Anne-Marie, my second mom, I'd do something weird. i put the crepes on my face. I know it sounds crazy, I'd get out of the car, sit at the table, she'd hand me a crepe, and I'd put it on my face and smell it. That buckwheat smell was in the back of my mind. I'd always remembered it. So one day, I'm eating a buckwheat crepe drizzled with butter, and it was cause. Cas in Breton means crispy. And I go, that's it! That's it, buckwheat! When people come to the region, they eat crepes. Wheat crepes for sweet toppings, buckwheat for savory. And I thought, why don't I use that? So I create carazin carazin. ice cream. Caramel Caramel and serrazin. Serrazin is buckwheat. Carazin, ice cream. So now I've found my hook and I start working on it. In 2003, the restaurant critic Gilles Pudlowski comes over to eat. He says nothing, but he calls me a week later. I'm going to write an article about you. I ate really well. He says nothing more. The article comes out, and the headline is The Little Prince at the Edge of the World. It's February. In April, it's Easter, holiday time, and all the Parisians descend on us, and it starts. The year after, I start hiring. I hire a commis. I hire an apprentice. I hire a pastry chef. 2005, I'm awarded my first star. But I'll tell you something crazy. I really don't care because I know it's only the first step. One day, a regular tells me, Olivier, tone down the buckwheat, you put the buckwheat in everything. I figure, he's exaggerating. But then I realize there's buckwheat in the appetizer, in the starter, in two of the dishes. So he's not wrong. And I start thinking about something from my childhood. Every Sunday night, during the winter, my mother would make us scallops with salami sausage. Pasta, pan-fried scallops, and slices of salami. And I think, okay, here's something else I can expand on. Not surf and turf, everyone does that. But offal and seafood together. What I mean is the cheap cuts, the less fancy parts of the animal, along with shellfish. So I start digging into the idea, and the first dish I make is scallops with blood sausage.
2: Scallops with blood sausage.
1: Rabbit liver with langoustine. Tripe tartlets with squid and tarragon. Sea bass and red wine sauce with oysters and pig trotters. I know now it sounds pretty common, but at the time, no one was doing it. So between the end of 2007 and 2008, customers start showing up, and more and more, articles are being published about us. And we get our second star in 2010. So it's February, I'm on vacation, I'm in Marrakesh. On Wednesday, my mom rings. I'd been there two days, and she says, "So feeling rested?" And she says, "I'm asking because next week, when we reopen on Saturday, it'll be quite busy." And I say, "How many? Twenty covers?" And she says, "No, forty covers." And then she pauses. So I say, "What's the problem?" She says, "We're fully booked for the next two weeks after that, too, Olivier. Forty covers a day. Forty covers a day, and people keep ringing." So we did 40 covers a day, 45 on the weekends, every day for two years, until 2012. That second star, when you get it, you don't realize it'll be a second tidal wave. Actually, it's more like a tsunami because now the whole of Europe is coming over to eat. People come from Moscow, from Italy, Spain, England. You even get Americans coming over. So at the end of 2012, we've gone up to 80 covers a day in Plumordierne, and it's gotten tough. For the next two years, you don't even chase that third star. We're just trying to hold on and not lose the second one. In the meantime, I opened Merci in Paris, M-E-R-S-E-A. Four guys came to see me. They outlined this idea about fast food for seafood. Five minutes into the meeting, I'm in. At first, I'm a consultant, but after a year, I become an investor. The first thing I do is require that we only use fresh produce, like a fine dining restaurant with a French catch caught in French waters by French boats and everything made with fresh products fine dining style, and it worked. In the meantime, I open a restaurant in Hong Kong too. 15 people in the kitchen, 10 front of house staff, eight tables, 16 covers, all facing a 50 meter long creek that you can see from the tables through a big bay window. And we get a star within the first six months. So I have a star in Hong Kong, two quick serve restaurants now opened, and about 20 people working with me here. But I'm starting to really burn out. And in 2019, my sous-chef, who's been with me three and a half years, he decides to leave. So I hire another guy from Plaza Athene. I get a new pastry chef, and I think, all right, I've got the right team to get a third star now. But that is not right at all. I keep clashing with them. I had a real argument with one of the guys. Let's put it that way. I'm exhausted, my legs hurt, and at the start of January, I totally blow up. It's a Wednesday morning. I'm arguing with one of the guys. I say, if that's how it's going to be, I'll close down. He says, you can't do that. I say, I'm done. I'm worn out. You don't want to work with me? Fine. I'll shut it down. That was it. We turned away all the customers, cancelled everything.
2: There's one thing I can't
1: stand. It's people who can't hack it or don't want to learn. Recently, two guys said they wanted to leave, and I'm not going to try to force them to stay. You want to go? Go. They'd only done five months out of a year commitment. But they said I was too demanding, that I was too hard. Well, there's the door. Get out. So, yeah, I'm not an easy chef to work with, but I never said I was. I'll never pretend to be, and I'm not going to change either. But do you know how driven you need to be to make it in Plomordierne, population 2300, where there's nothing? I don't have an address on the Champs-Elysees. I'm in Plomo in Brittany. When people come here, they've come for me. They've decided to go to Berlin's. For the offal and the seafood cuisine, for the buckwheat, they want that personality. They want that sort of ballsy cooking. And if that's not what they find, then what happens? Am I an easygoing guy? No. Am I really demanding? Yes, I am. I'm a tiger. If anyone messes with me, they'll get a claw. You know what I'm saying? When a tiger takes a swipe at you, it's going to hurt. I'm five foot nine, 260 pounds. When I have a go at you, sure, I'm intimidating. But I've cried too. I've gotten burned. Did it kill me? No. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It bothers me when someone cries. Of course, it's not a great situation, but what I say to people is that I'm here to offer things. Those who are receptive can learn from it, and others, they can
0: clear out. By now, night has fallen on the auberge des Glaziques. Chef Belin and I have been sitting across from each other and talking for four hours straight. When he tells us about this moment when he finally exploded, we can feel in his words and in the urgency how difficult it was, how painful it was. And that visceral need to tear himself away from constraints. After suddenly closing down his restaurant, there's going to be a period of total introspection. He wants to know if it's still able to run a Michelin-star restaurant, and for that, he's going to go back to the beginning. His engine has derailed, and now it's time to take stock and figure out how he can make it back onto the tracks.
1: My mother says, you're not doing well, and I say, I'm fine, I'm just burned out. You're not going to do anything stupid, are you? I say, well, maybe I've done something really stupid professionally, but I'm not going to kill myself, if that's what you want to know. I'm washed out. I just need a rest. As soon as I did it, I felt relieved. I'm free of that situation that I couldn't control anymore. But I knew how much it would cost me, and I knew it right away. It cost me a fortune. A heap of money. But I'm free again. And for a whole month at home, I don't talk to anybody. I like myself inside the house. Inside my bedroom, really, because my bedroom is my refuge. I have all my cookbooks in there. And I read. Everyone thinks I'm having a breakdown, but I'm doing fine. I start living again. I start doing things I hadn't done for ages. Getting up at 11, hanging around in my slippers, sipping coffee until 1, back in my bedroom again, not speaking to anyone, sleeping, taking the car for a drive, just driving around, going to movies, playing sports again. I lost 30 pounds. And most of all, I just reset everything. I called my friend Bancet, the chef at La reserve i I'd known him for 35 years. I say, "Can you do me a favor? Can I work in your kitchen as a commis?" He says, "You kidding? You have two stars. You get more pressed than me." And I say, "God damn it! Can I be your commis or what?" And he says, "April 15. Come on up. We'll be waiting for you."
2: April 15, I'm there. I walk down with the
1: rest of the staff. They give me some whites and I get to work. I peel artichokes. I remove giblets from squabs. I sweep the floor. I mop, I scrub. And they're all embarrassed to see me do this until by the end of the day, I have to say to the squad, you don't need to be embarrassed. Just get back to work. What I wondered was, do I still want to work at such a high level? But after five minutes, I realized that haute cuisine was what I wanted to get back to. February, March, April, May, June, four and a half months, and I'd built myself back up. One week later, I open the fine dining restaurant again. Comes the time for the first service, there's two of us there, my sommelier and me. That Saturday night, we do eight covers. And little by little, I rebuild the team. During the summer, I start the machine running again. No lunch service, we only open in the evenings, just one small tasting menu. When I started the restaurant again, I said to the team, we have three months to get to know each other. But most of all, we have three months to recreate what it took me 20 years to build. Through the years, my cooking has evolved. First the buckwheat, then the offal and seafood. Now I've brought back some freshness into my cooking. If it doesn't have that freshness, it can be sort of too austere. They're certainly not elegant enough. So I've sort of gone up a notch in elegance by upping the acidity, by adding fresher notes. That came from my traveling all over Asia. So, our cooking is evolving. The Goi Guide came out in September, and they maintained my 17.5 out of 20 rating. Then the Michelin maintained my two stars. Didn't expect that. I said, if we manage to keep our two stars, I'll have really pulled off something. And I did, so I succeeded. But in the back of my head, there's still a yearning for three stars. It's not that I want three stars so I can say I'm better than anyone. It really isn't. It'd be a culmination, an acknowledgement of all the hard work that's happening in the kitchen. I don't think you can maintain three stars all your life. It's just good to know you achieved it, even if you lose it the year after. But to be on top of the world just for one moment… I want our restaurant to be one of the greatest restaurants in the world, here in this tiny village. And then when it happens, I'll say, see, no one bet a dime on me, but I did it. So it's now or never. Maybe it'll be never, who knows. Maybe they'll take a star off. Maybe one day they'll demote me to one star. But I'm just too proud. So if I go down to one,
0: I'll just shut it all down. If I had to choose only one sentence out of this whole interview to describe Olivier Belin, I'd probably pick that one. If I go down to one, I'll just shut it all down. With Chef Belin, it's glory, or burst. I spent three days with him. We recorded over 10 hours of interview. We spent time in his kitchen with him and his staff. He cooked for me razor clams, asparagus, scallops with blood sausage, of course. That famous offal and seafood. And in each dish I've eaten, I found his whole life unfolding. The story of Brittany, this land rushing into the sea. When I met him on the first day, we talked for over four hours, non-stop. And he told me all about his life. So when we turned off the microphone, I thought we'd chat a bit more, have a drink, I don't know. But less than a minute later, my son and Jenny and I had been bundled at the door. He just got up and said, Got what you need? Good, see you tomorrow. On the last day, we recorded him in his kitchen. And out of a drawer, he pulled out that Robuchon book that had made such an impression on him. Here we were, in the middle of his kitchen, with his cooks buzzing around us, and he was reading his words as if he was rediscovering them. He'd opened up about his whole life, and I felt happy I'd come all this way to meet him, to the very end of Brittany. We said, goodbye chef, and he said, call me Olivier, guys. He gave us a big bear hug, and we got back into the car, feeling like we'd met a lord in his manner, at the very end of the world. Thank you very much for listening to the first episode of our podcast. And forgive my English. I hope you enjoyed discovering Olivier Balland's story as much as we did. Please spread the word, send us a message, leave a comment. We need your support to launch this podcast series in the next few months. So please tell everyone about us because we need partners. And if you want to partner with us and sponsor this podcast series about the personal stories of the greatest chefs in France, then please drop us a line at podcast at nolamedias.com. See you soon.